it's first impressions podcast we are live to talk about jane austen and to give a big middle finger to all the haters i am Kristen. i am joined by maggie hello hi <laughs> we are coming at you from quarantine we're coming at you live from the apocalypse <laughs> live from the apocalypse and i, not, I feel i felt I, can, I felt conflicted. I, I was like, I don't want to fiddle while Rome burns, right? But so if you are out there, to all our listeners out there who may have been affected by the coronavirus, it's very serious and we don't want to minimize that by talking about Jane Austen a lot. But we are here to do it because we're bored and well, stuck at home. I don't know about everyone else, but I my anxiety level has varied day to day and I have been seeking escapism. I don't want to listen to more stuff about what's going on. I want to listen to things that are different from that. So Kristen and I thought we would record a second episode about the recent Emma movie uh, as a way to distract ourselves well, in fact, I am forced to record a second Emma episode. Even if you had not been down, I would have been here. Because when we recorded the first one, I had only seen the movie three times. Oh, only three times. And that wasn't enough for the breakthrough I had upon the fifth viewing. Now, having seen the movie eight times, I realized oh, oh, <laughs> so many things we oh, didn't talk about that I wanted to talk about. And the thing is... When you're watching it in the theater, you cannot take notes. And now that I've been watching it at home, I have been able to realize, oh, yes, I wish I had talked about that in the first one. And, and it's so brilliant. We have to talk about it. And the first thing, the mo probably one of the, the most important things to get off my chest is that, yes, I did recognize the actress who played Mary Bennett in P&P &P 95 was cast as Mrs. Reynolds. The oh, housekeeper yes, at Donwell Abbey. She had one scene and they called her Mrs. Reynolds, which is a callback to P&P &P because Mrs. Mm -hmm. Reynolds is the name of the housekeeper at Pemberley. In the book, Knightley's housekeeper is named Mrs. Hodges. So this is clearly a call out to Pride and Prejudice. Having cast Mary Bennett from that movie, I was thrilled to see her and it was a fun little Easter egg. I gasped in the theater <laughs> when she came on screen and I'm sure everyone shared the response that Bay had where he looked at me like I'd lost my mind and I went <laughs> that's Mary Bennett that's Mary Bennett and he was like okay we're watching the movie and this is you know the first five minutes <laughs> that just happens but no I did I did like I was like clutching my pearls gasp I was so but it made me so happy good for her you also said that you gasped when you saw Johnny's Flynn's butt. So this makes there was a lot gasps. And this was like a minute later. There was a lot of gasping right there. Because <laughs> uh, it was very exciting. Um, first the butt, then Mary Bennett. I just get excited when I see people from the 1995 Pride and Prejudice oh, in yeah. other things, no matter how small their role is. Because you're They're just like, like long you? I recognize you. Long lost friends, right? It mm -hmm. just makes you, you know, it's like you know this person because you've watched them for so many hours on the TV. And um, actually, I think you said this. And also, um, our fan Beth also made this point in her her Miss Bates style monologue that we posted to the Facebook page about the movie, where it starts out with the singing. And I think you both were like, is this going to be a musical? <laughs> oh, so I had I've only watched it three times. So I'm clearly <laughs> behind the curve here. But when I watched it for the third time, which was today um, on On Demand, 
I realized that the first scene, which starts with Mr. Woodhouse jumping down the stairs and then everyone kind of flowing around him getting ready, I expected Bill Nye at any moment to start singing and this was going to be an opening number. Just the way the music sounds, the way it's staged, it's set up perfectly like it was going to be a musical. And then I thought, oh my God, Emma the Musical would be so great. That probably already exists, actually. I'm sh- I hope somebody I'm sure. has. It's great. I just, I don't know. Then I was just excited about this idea. I love it too. Um, bursting into song, something that would definitely have added to the movie. I, um, yeah, so I just, I didn't want anyone to think that I had not noticed. So I owed it to my own character as the Jane Knight to say that. Kristen, um, I don't think anybody listening to this thinks that there's any detail in this movie that you have failed to notice. <laughs> So there are all these little things that I wanted to say last time that I didn't say. And some of them, one of them, at least I had actually said to Kevin right before we did the podcast. And so I was like, la-di-da, I've made my point. And then I went, (laughs) I was not being recorded when I made my point. The thing about Emma, even though Knightley says she's not personally vain, right? In the movie, she is often either getting clothed or being fitted for clothes in front of a full-length dressing mirror. And looking at herself in the mirror, we get the shots with her reflection, which of course relates to her narcissism and, you know, self-regard, self, well, self-regard, self-conceit. And then in the end, after she feels she's lost Knightley's esteem and he's chastised her, she's sitting in a chair with her head in her hands and the mirror is pushed into the corner because she, she can't even look at herself. <laughs> that's right. The image in her mind of herself has been dissolved. <laughs> she's every, she's come back to reality. Every time I watch this movie, each viewing, I realize more and more. The first maybe like good hour and 20 minutes, they really make her kind of a not great person. I mean, she's not a terrible person, right? Yeah. But they just make her, I just, it hits me, it strikes me more each time I watch it because I notice little details how they what how like kind of a selfish bitch they make her (laughs) anytime someone like the first hour anytime miss bates or harriet is talking she's just rolling her eyes yeah and if she was if we were doing a modern adaptation of this now do you know what emma's number one word would be that she would say whatever (laughs) whatever no it would be right she would just say whatever to everything someone told her i can't believe you knew exactly what i was gonna say (laughs) it's a very clueless Uh, no another way clueless got it right her character change happens kind of late um i guess they do kind of tone it down as we go along i do like watching her friendship with harriet actually become a real friendship because the first maybe four scenes they have together it's clearly not yet where she just can't stand every time harriet starts talking yes (laughs) yes she rolls her Uh, eyes every time i watch it i like her less in the beginning of the movie oh no she's terrible well and somebody said too um this was just i think it was just a comment on a facebook post so i can't attribute it to the person who really said it but um, somebody said in the Gwyneth version of Emma that the contempt the movie has for Harriet is evident, where she's just, Tony Collette is just so stupid, right? Yeah. And, you know, it's played for comedy when she brings her little precious treasures and wants to burn them. This movie gives Harriet's feelings a lot more weight and validity. And one of the things they changed was rather than Harriet coming to Emma and wanting to burn the court plaster and the pencil and the fire, 
they they have this book where she's taking down, she's transcribing Elton's sermons, and she just flings it out the window into the pond from the carriage, right? Which is a more violent expression of of her feelings. And Emma is not at all nice about it. She's like, enough about Mr. Elton. Yeah. And it's mm-hmm. a horrible moment. And then um, the other thing is that I thought that I love that she cared about Mr. Elton's preaching and was like hanging on to his every word is it showed how devoted she was to him as a person, not just as an idea of a rich guy who might marry her, but like, oh, he's so intelligent. Oh, I love his sermons. Oh, I'm rereading what he said. You know, it it was like, man, this girl's got it bad. And it and she's not dumb. She's Oh, she's, she's got it bad. <laughs> yeah. That's your little mermaid quote. <laughs> I think part of the problem with, so I love Toni Collette. I just want to say that first. And I've loved her ever since I saw Muriel's Wedding on VHS and whenever it came out in my local video store. Mm -hmm. Uh, But she is much older than Harriet Smith is supposed to be. So her kind of affectations in the Gwyneth Paltrow version of her being giggly and higher pitched voice to embody a younger character, she clearly was not a teenager, this version is very much well served by having Harriet Smith actually look like a teenager. Oh, for sure. I, I th- just think her react. She she is very broadly comedic, but she just I don't know. She just feels so much like a real teenager to me in this. They did so many brilliant character things um, to make her seem young, to make her seem shy, to make her seem unsure. I love her little run. First of all, her little like sort of duck run. She runs in a very unusual way that Mia Goth, that actress, I think that's her name. And I don't know who came up with it, but it's adorable. And then every time she sees Robert Martin, she's like, (gasps) the gasping. She does that a lot. (laughs) And then there's another little moment that I thought was beautiful where Mr. Elton and Emma are looking at Emma's portraits and Harriet is sitting behind them sort of out of the way on the window seat. And Emma turns to her and says, Harriet, have you ever had your portrait painted? And she goes, oh, your likeness taken. She goes, oh, no. And she's like almost so embarrassed to just be part of the conversation and to be looked at. She's super shy and she's blushing. And it really makes you understand the character a lot better than Toni Collette's um, take. You know, like you said, no knock on Toni Collette. She's amazing, but. I love the first scene where she goes to Hartfield and they have tea and she's copying exactly what Emma does. Oh, yeah. And she grabs one of the tiny macarons and is eating it and she's just chewing very quickly. It's so funny. (laughs) (laughs) It's really funny. And Emma's like... Um, Actually, something I noticed this time, I don't know if it's 100% true, but every time I noticed someone eating, it was a point being made that it was vulgar. So... There's Harriet eating the macaron at the Christmas party. Emma is delicately sipping her soup, but Elton is also mimicking her, (laughs) but not in a slick way. And you have Mrs. Elton eating something when she first comes to Hartfield. She actually, Mr. Elton reaches for a second little, but she slaps his hand away because Yeah. And, you know, every time somebody visits Emma, these huge cakes, beautifully iced, are just massive cakes just being set down on the sideboards and everything. And I kind of wondered, is it rude to actually eat when you're there all these beautiful things? Because Harriet sort of takes one when Emma doesn't. And then, you know, and of course, nobody's cutting into these cakes. I mean, it's just over the top. 
Well, the food porn in this movie is fantastic, but that's what I was thinking. Wait, we don't actually ever see anyone eating. And the few (laughs) times that we do, they're making a point of them being, you know, kind of vulgar in that they're eating. But I mean, if you think that Emma can fit into those dresses because she's eating (laughs) all day, then you are fooling yourself. That girl does not eat. Even um, when Mr. Elton takes the wine at the Christmas party, Mm -hmm. he's like, ooh, and he grabs the wine. (laughs) Yeah. Mother, I think that they you use must the, sample the tart. The <laughs> the presentation of food is used as a way to show wealth, but the imbibing in a food and drink is used to show kind of commonness. Yeah. Well, there is that one scene where Jane Fairfax is eating the custard and she's so well prepared this custard is and you She's using it as an excuse to get out of the conversation, I guess. Yes, but what happens right after she says that? She is chast- She is told not to eat. Who? Because Mr. Woodhouse says, oh, I do not. I do not advise it. the custard. Yeah, yes. so he says that she is Mrs. almost Bates. chastised for eating at that point. <laughs> yeah, well, Mrs. Bates. And then, of course, he proposes the wine and the tumbler of water, naturally. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Oh, and I had so much appreciation for Bill Nye in this too. I would not call him a restrained actor usually, uh, but he his performance was so just kind of quiet, but really good. Oh, so good. You can say so much when you, you're, you know, restrained. Um, he just, he uses his, his facial muscles so well in these tiny little sort of glances. I also loved how squeaky the pews were. In the church. Oh, every time someone sit like my chair right now, I can do it. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Because yeah. that's just realistic, first of all. Uh-huh. But they used it to really good effect to show when Mrs. Elton shows up and she's in the first pew. And then it just knocks everyone topsy-turvy. Like, no one knows where to sit. Everyone's milling around. The coals are like, or is Emma going to sit next to us? And um, it they just, had to sit behind the coal, as uh, one pew back from the coal. How right. embarrassing. How embarrassing. And so it's comedy, but it also shows how Emma is being supplanted, just like she's supplanted later at the ball, by a temporarily more important person in company. Um, oh, I mean, but a bride, I suppose. A bride must always be first. <laughs> That's right. Oh, um, Kristen, so we're coming up on our one-year anniversary, actually. It's April 13th. Oh, and wow. I have the rest of our wedding cake in our freezer and I am ready. <laughs> as soon as April 13th comes around, man, that cake is going to be gonzo. <laughs> I um, I wish I could say something about how delicious the cake was, but I have no memory of, probably because I was so drunk, no memory of the cake. Was it good? <laughs> it's very good. And I think we actually gave you a Tupperware container to give to Kevin. Oh, that's right. Sick. Because and then you were sick, so you probably didn't get any of that either. No, I don't think I was. <laughs> hey, Kevin, do you remember eating Maggie's cake from her wedding? Uh, yeah, when I went the next morning to say congratulations to her and Bay, she gave me a piece of cake. Did you hear that? What my benevolence it? knows oh. no bounds. Kevin said it was awesome. <laughs> I even shared my cake. Uh, no, but we were really, because bu- I don't know if everyone remembers, but Kevin had a terrible, like, 24-hour stomach bug, of course, then he woke up the morning of our wedding too sick to come, and it was really sad. It was a nightmare. It was a nightmare. Oh, my God, this story. It was a nightmare. Oh, he was so sick, and I thought, surely I had it, too, and that I was going to, something was going to, ha- you know, I was going to, like, I, I hate to say it, but, like, puke all over my bouquet. Like, I was like, okay, if I start feeling all weird, 
I'm just going to book it because it's better for me to leave the wedding, you know, cause I was a bridesmaid, right? So I'm standing up there. I was like, it's going to be better for me to leave the wedding entirely than for me to like puke all <laughs> But you held it together. You didn't get sick until the next morning, not which was also really night. sad. Yeah, no, is that yes, not until I went to bed. I, I remember hanging out with you guys at the bar and wanting to stay and just my whole body just hurting. And I thought, wow, I overdid it on the dance floor. But no, I, that was the anyway, I'll edit this part out. <laughs> Why? This is great. This is what people <laughs> this like. Is, this, this is the gold. This is the gold. But this is so ironic because I had gotten food poisoning like five days before the wedding. So I was actually nauseous all day long too, because I still had not, I had not completely recovered from my terrible food poisoning and my anxiety takes the form of nausea a lot. So I had to step away in during the middle of the reception for like 10 minutes and get some fresh air. Cause I didn't want to like throw up all over our sweetheart table. Yeah. We were oh, barely keeping it together, man. Good times. It was fun. Okay, so we need never to never again. Never do it again. Oh God, <laughs> never do it again. It's awful. Weddings are so disruptive to one's life for like a year. Mm-hmm. Um, but it was amazing. Everyone keeps talking about how amazing it was. I thought it was amazing. Oh well, thank you. Well, it was it was no uh, ball at the local inn, but I thought it was good. That's right. We have to talk about the ball. Okay, so there. Let's let's skip down to that. So this is a good segue. So the ball. So many things that are so amazing about the ball that I forgot to say. And my biggest thing was that when they are doing that, when Knightley and Emma are doing the dance together, it is so intimate and they're, they're clearly so connected and they're, they're having these moments that um, there's one part where they sort of have to stand because Maggie and I did these country dances when we went to Jasna and it was, it was very, very educational for me. So there's one part where you sort of have to stand because they, they didn't have the, partners or whatever and they're so into each other that they forget to move out of the way which is so realistic I, it was so realistic to me that they might they would make a misstep and be like oh god we got to move because that's the way first of all that's the way we were when we were dancing but yeah. Emma is like why we haven't had a ball here and like she's not used to dancing they're not used to it they don't do this all the time so of course that they would get when if if you get distracted for a second somebody's yeah. going to barrel you over. I mean, those dances are very, you've got to be paying attention. I loved that detail so much. And Did then, you notice that the dance, when Knightley asks, Knightley himself, when <laughs> he asks Harriet to dance, the dance that they're all doing is the one that Harriet and Emma were practicing the night before? I did notice that with the like legs going out. And it's very like, cute. It's so cute. And in the, uh, the, the music that they chose for Harriet and Knightley's dance, even though it started out with a little bit of a different beginning, it resolved into the same song that they used in the Gwyneth adaptation for Harriet and Knightley's dance. And that just made me so happy because every that must time have been an homage, right? That has to be a purpose. It has to be. It has yeah. to be. And yeah. And you know what? They look like they're having so much fun. They're all laughing and giggling and just, it's not formal. It does feel like a country in ball and a novelty for them. And it just was really well done. And then the one thing that um, actually Kevin pointed out to me was that, oh, we have to talk about this because we didn't talk about it in the other podcast. When Knightley and Emma dance at the very end, you can hear his hand sort of move against her dress as mm-hmm. he sort of he clutches. When he's holding her waist. Yes. 
Um, and Kevin, Kevin said afterwards, he was like, the Foley artist did a good job. And I was like, I don't know what that means. And apparently it's the sound guy that works on the little kind of brushing sounds or smaller sounds that you would yeah. need. And, um, but it, it meant a lot to hear that hand brush against her because you knew that the physical sensation you, you felt in your mind, that physical sensation that he, they were trying to convey. And it so was very sexy. <laughs> that scene to me is, it's like in the 1995 Pride and Prejudice when she was leaving Pemberley and Darcy helps Lizzie into the carriage or like the 2005 Pride and Prejudice when Darcy helps Lizzie into the carriage and then does the hand flex. It's like the physicality of their attraction. So very, to me, this that little, it's, it's similar, it's on the same uh, level as those moments in the other adaptations where they actually have physical contact contact and it's electrifying well what's shocking about that that dance too between them is that i didn't notice this until like the eighth watch because i'm not good with this kind of detail they were not wearing gloves no and but they weren't actually touching they do that thing where they bring their hands almost together but they're never actually not quite touching so that's why also when he's holding her waist you're like oh my gosh he's actually touching her body yeah, there's another point where they, they do hold hands because she gets up close to him and there he's holding her her hands, which is also a very sort of sexy part. And that's when I think that's when they forget to move out of the way because they just yeah. love the intensity of this. But she in the right in the scene right before they start dancing together, she's holding, holding her, her gloves. Yeah. Yes, and he has lost his gloves entirely. And I could see that. I mean, this dance lasted all night long. You're like shedding clothes and you're hot and whatever. And maybe they just forgot to put them back on. But everybody else that is dancing is wearing gloves. And so mm-hmm. it's this very, you know, interesting contrast. I, I just, my mind was blown when I realized that. And apparently some people picked that up on the first viewing. So I apologize oh, for well, being good so good for them. Wow, you guys have yeah. eagle eyes. <laughs> He also, I believe, like runs without his hat, but then somehow has his hat when he gets to her house. <laughs> never mind, never mind. Maybe he's holding it in his hand because I know he takes it off when he gets there and wipes yeah. his sweaty brow. But so perhaps he's holding it in his hand when he's oh, maybe leaving he it on town. To run. I don't remember. Yeah, no. I... Anyway, that's n- neither here nor there. But we have to talk about. We talked about the score last time and how good it was, but. Maggie and I have been obsessing about the score today. We both bought it and we're both reading about it. And so the score, many of the pieces that sound like they're from operas were actually original compositions by Isabel Waller-Bridge and David David Schweitzer. Um, Isabel Waller-Bridge being related to Phoebe Waller-Bridge, who did the show Fleabag. Then you just wonder what happens in these incredibly talented families. I mean, what the hell, right? But um, they did, Isabel Waller-Bridge and David Schweitzer did this amazing, amazing job. And we were talking today about how much heavy lifting the score does in making class distinctions clear, in telling us, making themes for the characters clear. It sets the stage for what's happening and it heightens the comedy it heightens the the sorrow and the sadness when Emma's on the stairs and that one they didn't compose. That's Amber Anderson performing Beethoven's Sonata number 23, which I didn't know until I downloaded the soundtrack. But that song just rips me up every time. When um, you're saying Emma is on the stairs, what scene are you referring to? When she's already insulted Miss Bates and she has to go walk up the stairs to their tiny apartment. Oh, when she's sitting on when she's sitting in the windowsill and her dad comes by. 
No. Just before that? No, after that. So she's crying. Oh, she... oh, when she's on the stairs at the Bates. At yeah. The Bates's. Oh, okay, okay, I got you. And her costume matches the wallpaper in the hallway, I'm just saying. Yes, you said, said that. Yeah, the, the, the colors are another thing in the settings that do a ton of heavy lifting um, about, you know, but that's true of every movie. But... But, you know, even character stuff like Donwell having sheets thrown over everything or and, and Emma's house looking like a dollhouse, right? Because she's mm-hmm. playing with these characters like dolls. But as you said, like um, Emma's theme is this operatic and Harriet's is more folk music. And then when the folk music comes on, also that's often when Robert Martin or when Mrs. Goddard's are playing. So the class distinctions yeah. and the, the vast difference between the classes is made clear by with this musical with these contrasts yeah anytime you hear the italian clearly referencing mozart opera sound uh we're probably at hartfield and we're definitely going to be from emma's point of view yeah which i thought was really cool and i can't believe those weren't actually samples of mozart operas i was (laughs) So I was, oh, okay. And I think because they used, in one of the trailers, they used um, a duet from the Magic Flute, which is called Pa Pa Pa. Uh, it's a very comedic um, duet between some characters in the Magic Flute. I just assumed they were also using uh, Mozart opera in the movie. And when I found out they were original compositions, I was just so delighted because I thought they yeah. were, it was just so, so on point uh, for the time period and the mood. But what I really want is, to know what this, the words mean in Italian that are being sung, you know, because they put these beautiful, yeah. beautiful vocalists on these tracks and they're singing in Italian clearly. And unless they're just singing gibberish, I really want to know what they're singing. Maybe we could ask on our Facebook page and of course in our episode as well, if any of our listeners uh, know Italian and could give us a translation. I haven't tried to find one online. I'm sure we could, but it might be fun if if any of you know Italian or know what the singers are saying, please, please let us know. We'd love to know. We have to harness the power of our hundreds of listeners. Yeah. <laughs> our tens of teens tens. of listeners. <laughs> we appreciate every single one of you. Absolutely. So I couple of things, a couple of other things, bigger things that sort of drove the need for me to do this podcast is that, so Kevin, we threw on um, the Mansfield Park adaptation with Haley Atwell. Um, Kevin put it on as a treat for me, which I thought was very sweet, but he is fascinated by the relationship between Henry Crawford and Fanny Price. And during a scene where Henry Crawford is, um, you know, proposing to Fanny or saying he can't live without her or something, Kevin paused it and he said to me, you know, this breaks down to Henry Crawford wanting Fanny to make him a better person. Yes, and he puts all the... He puts all the- labor the emotional labor on fanny to redeem him and make him a better person he's not willing to make any actual like personal effort without her exactly and this was my epiphany because i think the romance of austin now that i think about it is not just two hot people right interested you know like we don't even see them in the books obviously but not just two people jonesing for each other but two people who in these relationships at least one of them is forcing the other one to evolve, grow, change, become better. When they are attracted to each other, 
it's almost a moral or an attraction of principles, um, a moral attraction, I guess you could kind of say it, where where Darcy becomes obsessed with Elizabeth because he shows him a better way of living and a better way of being. And Emma tries so hard to become worthy of Mr. Knightley at the end of the book, which really makes you root for them and feel, you know, she's really redeemed because she comes out and she says a lot of things. I went through, I went to the book, I got the actual quotes about how Emma is the feeling. actual quotes. <laughs> how Emma is feeling after she's been chastised. And it's so she's so wretched. Time did not compose her. As she reflected more, she seemed but to feel it more. She never had been so depressed. Emma felt the tears running down her cheeks almost all the way home, without being at any trouble to check them, extraordinary as they were which is such a not an Emma thing to do, to be crying in the carriage. She is just not a person who lets herself be wounded, right? Um, and then when she goes to the Bates the next day, she is thinking the whole way, maybe, maybe she'll see Mr. Knightley, maybe he will be there. It says she would not be ashamed of the appearance of the penitence so justly and truly hers. She wants him to see her doing this penance. She's not embarrassed about it. She she feels she needs to redeem herself in his eyes. And I just think that's so beautiful and really shows us that at her core, she is a moral person. She does know right from wrong. She does want to do good. And Knightley is the person who's challenging her and bringing that out of her. And I think that is really romantic. And there's one little other thing about this where Knightley knows that Emma is capable of these moral things and this moral growth. And one of the things I noticed on repeated viewing is the way they framed the shot where they're, they're sitting together at the fire and Harriet has refused Robert Martin. And Emma says to Knightley, was Robert Martin very disappointed? And he, he walks back to look at her and they're framed in perfect silhouette and they're very close to each other. And it, it's a very intimate shot. And I always wondered why they, the first couple of times I watch a movie, I'm like, why are they doing this? This this feels so weighty. When he says, no man could be more so, meaning no man could be more disappointed, he's not only talking about Robert Martin, he's talking about himself. He is disappointed in Emma and her failing. And really, it is a moral failing to say, I just want to keep Harriet for myself. That is totally unfair to Harriet. She has a future and she's been robbed. You know, it has been robbed from her. <laughs> That's what I'm trying to say. I'm sorry I've barreled on like a freight train again. No, I love it. I'm just giving you space. Okay. Well, then let me move on to the other thing. I'm giving thing. you space because I know that you need to get this off your chest. So I'm, I'm just letting you go for it. I know yeah. that this has been, these thoughts have been plaguing you since our first episode. They have been plaguing Until plaguing you get them me. out in the world, they will continue bouncing around your brain and they just yes. have to be made free. Oh, Maggie, you know me so well. I get well, you, girl. Here's the other thing about Emma's extreme distress in the carriage and her extreme distress going, you know, going to the bases. And even when Miss Bates says, you are always kind. And it, the book says there was no bearing such dreadful gratitude because it, it's, 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 you know, it's wounding Emma, right? The book and the movie completely understands this. And the fifth time I watched a movie, I was so <laughs> devastated by the chastisement and then cut cut to the scene where Emma's going up the stairs to the Bates' apartment 
for the first time seeing them after she's insulted Miss Bates. And there's that, that Beethoven sonata, and it's just, you're just devastated. Even when I watch the Gwyneth version, I cry at this part. Aww. I cry when she has to go to the Bates, and it's so hard, and she feels so awful. In, in that version, doesn't Miss Bates, is that when she, like, runs out of the room? She yeah. can't even, like, be in the room because she's so embarrassed and, like, hurt? Yes, yes, they do that. In this one, they they don't. They have Miss Bates come out, which is the same thing that happens in the book. Miss Bates right. doesn't run away, and she does say, "You are always kind," which to me is an even worse wound than seeing Miss Bates run away. Is this like kind of putting on a brave face? I have to acknowledge your kindness, even though you were horrible to me. Kind of a, a thing. Um, oh, anyway. I didn't get it. I didn't interpret it that way at all. I. Knightley says to Emma when he's chastising her, he says that she, Miss Bates, she spoke about it with such generosity. No, like I think Emma right. insulted her and Miss Bates is the one who's apologizing because for having spoken so dully so many times. Do you know what I mean? And yes. so I got in that scene where even when Emma shows up to apologize, Miss Bates is still just kind of like, oh, you're so kind. You're always so kind. You are always or, kind. Thank you. It's like, oh, thank you so much for putting up with me. The way that Miranda Hart delivers that line, but but you are always kind with this very right. firm delivery. Like this is the, the thing we choose, we are choosing to believe right now. I have forgiven yes. you, right? Reinforcing your, you are always kind, which is this... It's hard to even put into words what that mixture of emotions that is going on right there. But anyway, that's not what I wanted to say at all. <laughs> that's oh, a side okay. tangent. So when Emma is on the stairs and there's this this music that just cuts you, like cuts into you, at least it is like hurting me. I was in so much pain. I thought to myself, Jane Austen knew what it felt like and what it was like to be on the metaphorical stairs to be in this moment having to go face somebody that you've been awful to and you have mm -hmm. to somehow get beyond it and get past it. And this is the most dreadful thing to me and the, the, the hardest scene to me in all of Austin because, you know, she was funny. She was witty. She was satirical. She could get frustrated with people. And I have no doubt that she said things in her life, like we all do, that, you know, hurt people. That, right. You're making so, a joke, but I mean, this has happened to me, obviously. <laughs> yeah, no, I, uh, you make, you think you're making a joke and like playing along with the reading the room and the crowd and stuff. But then afterwards, someone's like, that really hurt my feelings. And then you feel like such an asshole. And for me, I, I just, I cannot wait to just be like, oh my God, I'm so sorry. I didn't mean it that way. Please forgive me. Oh, I'm so sorry. I didn't mean to hurt you. Oh God. And I just, I, I can't, like if I had been Emma, I couldn't have waited until however long it is for her to go. I would have rushed over there no. like as soon as I had, was done to apologize because I can't stand when I say something that hurts my friend or anyone, but or my friends especially. Do you know what I mean? I, I have to immediately be like, oh, so sorry and beg forgiveness. Right. So it's that feeling that is so awful. It's torture, right? So mm -hmm. I was sitting there feeling how torturous it was and knowing that Jane Austen felt it too. And I have certainly felt it too. And then a comment, a, a something popped into my head from among the Janeites where Devaney Lozer said that she does not like Mansfield Park because Devaney herself is too much like Fanny. Fanny is too much like her. She can't 
she gets frustrated. And then Too close I, to home. Then I thought, oh my God. Uh-oh. I am Jane Austen's worst heroine. <laughs> I am. I am. I can't stand Emma because she does this and hurts people. And that is the worst part of me that I do not want to face. That is why I never reach to Emma for comfort. Oh, Kristen, what are you talking about? I was just, I cried like I broke down in the theater. Well, you don't know. I mean, you and I have never had a fight, right? But you have to remember I I was unmedicated bipolar for like 20 years. So I definitely, when you like have very changeable emotions and very eroded self-confidence, self-control, you can definitely pop out with some incredibly hurtful things, not thoughtlessly, but in anger. You, I definitely have, you know, I go from zero to 60 and when I'm really angry, I can definitely say and have definitely said incredibly hurtful things and then have had to be on, on the metaphorical stairs. And it's not something that I really do anymore, yet it's certainly something I have done enough that it's too painful. I have to turn away. That sounds like me today with Bay. I'm like a hormonal mess today. And I would just like start yelling at him to pick up his shit, pick up your shit. (laughs) (laughs) Quit playing Animal Crossing and pick up your shit. Oh my God. That, that exact fight happened. (laughs) (laughs) And then I, then I yelled at him for picking a fight with me. He's like, pick me picking a fight with you. Um, so should we make being, is being on the stairs now a shorthand for yes. the situation? It's, it's my mental shorthand for sure. I also think that in that scene, part of it though is, I mean, obviously Emma has been to the Bates's apartment before, but I think that she's never really looked around yes. at the shabbiness of where oh. they live. And her, her remembering what Knightley said, you know, she's poor. If the, if she was a woman of means and you talk to her like that, I wouldn't, you know, say anything to you about it because she, the level, right. The level's the same. Uh, But for her to mock a woman of such low means. And then when she actually looks around and realizes what he was saying was true, it just adds to her, her shame. It's just so well done. Peeling wallpaper, the dark, narrow, steep stairway. It kind of gave me a certain peace with Emma to realize that that's why I was so hard on her is because I was her. Um, <laughs> it made the cognitive dissonance You're handsome, less- clever, and rich. Okay. Um, yeah, no, not those aspects, but the thoughtlessness, the cruelty yeah. kind of thing. Well, we all do that, right? Right. We all do we it. All Hopefully we all, we all do it because I certainly done it. We're all, I think that we're all capable of that. I relate so specifically to the circumstances of that where it was a group gathering. Emma was the center of attention and talking and everyone was looking at her and she said it, you know, to, as she was the center of attention to get the laugh and then realized like, Oh shit went too far. So I definitely relate a lot to that where when I've said things, it's because I'm like being the shining star of the party and everyone look at me, but then you say something that's really mean by accident. Yeah. But then I remembered something even more sort of gut wrenching, which is 
the famous quote about what Jane Austen said about Emma, which is, she's a character that no one but myself will much like. And by transference of that principle, Jane Austen wants to redeem me too, right? Like she thinks Emma, despite hurting other people, she's still worthy of love, right? Emma is still worthy of her happy ending with Mr. Knightley, even though she already, you know, she, she screwed a lot of stuff up and hurt other people. And that, I think, was the emotional, just complete gut punch of that. I was sitting in the theater and I was like, are we still, am I still worthy of love? (laughs) (laughs) Okay. So unless you're a sociopathic serial killer or something, everyone is worthy of love, right? Of course I accept that, that, but at the same time, when it's you, when it's you convicting yourself in your heart, it is, it is really hard to give yourself a pass when you, when you know you've hurt somebody and you know, and you're just focused on that and, you know, like you were saying, you just want to run and apologize or fix everything. And you really focus on how, you know, you really carry that with you. You know that you've screwed up. And so to have Jane Austen say across the years, you are likable. <laughs> Your mistakes make you human and I will redeem you. <laughs> and maybe you also a- remember that the Emma that exists in Jane Austen's head is the Emma that exists at the beginning and at the end of the book when she's changed. So when you first read Emma and you're in the beginning, you don't like Emma that much because (laughs) she has yet to have her arc. She hasn't changed. She hasn't grown. So maybe we can forgive ourselves when we make mistakes because we are yet not existing as we do at the end of our character arc. Exactly. And that the mistakes we make today are not the mistakes that we'll make in 10 years. Yes, and Uh, they're also very human mistakes that other people make, that Jane Austen could imagine people making that are not unique to you, you evil person you, right? (laughs) (laughs) Well, it's just like in Pride and Prejudice, too. Uh, At the beginning of that book, Lizzie and Darcy would be a terrible match. (laughs) (laughs) at the end of the book they are wonderful with each other and perfect for each other because they've both changed and grown so emma at the end is not the same as emma at the beginning and jane austen knows emma at the end yes and being redeemed by jane austen is actually a really pretty powerful thing when you go through this whole journey I don't know if I've ever done something so horrible that I needed to be redeemed. Like, that's really <laughs> strong. I've definitely made a lot of mistakes and opened my mouth when I shouldn't have, but saying I require redemption, that's like... No. I, I mean, I, this who know me would disagree. <laughs> but I did. I mean, oh. I did. I mean, when you have, like, you you have a really eroded sense of self-worth when you go through a mental health crisis for a lot of different reasons. And so that can mean a lot and be really powerful. I think that's just what I was going through. Well, I hope that you can acknowledge that just like Emma, you have also grown and changed for the, and, and what you would perceive as for the better. So thank you. (sighs) On to something happier on a happier note. You also wanted to talk about the fashion. Fashion. 
<laughs> so I shared a link on our Facebook page from one of my favorite blogs. Uh, they're called Tom and Lorenzo. It's these two fabulous gay, I call that they call themselves your, you know, funny gay uncles. And they are a fashion and pop culture and celebrity um, blog. And so they do these amazing deep dives into costuming. They did a whole series on Mad Men, which was genius. And they did one on Emma. And I was so excited, even though they stole some of stole whatever their geniuses. They said some of the things I was hoping to say on the podcast. So I will just direct you to that article. But the costumes in this are fantastic and they tell such a clear story of character, uh, especially Emma's character, where if you look at what she's wearing at the end of the movie versus the beginning, you can see that she has her, her emotion, she's matured emotionally and she's no longer the mean girl. She has uh, changed her level in terms of her maturity. You'll see a lot of yellow notes because Emma's like the sun of which all the other characters revolve around uh, this watching the movie this today, I really was struck by the scene where Knightley and Mr. Martin are walking together and he's saying, you know, I wanted to talk to you about proposing to Harriet. They are dressed not identically, but because but they are dressed very similarly. But Knightley's version of what Robert Martin is wearing is far more luxe and fancy. <laughs> if you look at them just side by side, you know, that's the scene where Knightley's wearing that beautiful butter color. Oh coat. yeah. Love and that it coat. has these beautiful boots. And if you look at Martin, the, the cut of his things is very similar, but obviously not as well made or as rich. His boots are actually his work shoes that have um, like strapped on pieces that come up the leg to make it a boot rather than being full boots that were clearly custom made. I don't know. I just little things like that. Or anytime you see Harriet and Emma side by side, if you look at what they're they're wearing, uh, there are clear distinctions in their dress. I mean, Emma goes to the boarding house wearing like oh, rich yeah. blue wool trimmed yeah. <laughs> outfit yeah. with yeah. her beautiful fur muff. And um, <laughs> Tom and Lorenzo, they call that like an ultimate flex. Yeah, okay. <laughs> yeah, it's very true. The stories that the costumes tell in this movie are fantastic. One of the points they made that I absolutely loved to pieces is when Harriet comes at the very end Mm -hmm. um, Harriet's often wearing these just all white, you know, the typical Regency baseline garb of just right. all white empire white waist dress. Um, and of course, Emma's always very ornate and over the top. When Har Harriet comes to Emma to say, oh, my father is a tradesman, he makes galoshes. Emma is wearing the, the simple all white empire waist Regency dress. And she's dressed almost the same as Harriet, except for Harriet has this fun, these fun yellow kid gloves, which are sort of more confident and show her, you know, sort of coming into her own. And so I feel like she's shed a lot of that snobbery along with a lot mm -hmm. of her finery in that scene. Yeah, um, and that's not my point. That's Tom and Lorenzo's part, point, but I absolutely loved it. And I'd never noticed it before. You could, if you just watch this movie, if you just focus on like, say the soundtrack, you'll see things you never notice. Yes. If you focus on the costumes, you'll see things you never notice. There's a, the layers of this are really beautiful. And those were the points we did not get to make when we did our first podcast <laughs> on Emma. 
Are we going to do a part three, Kristen? How many more times are you going to watch this movie no. like this week? It's like you said, it was rattling around in my head and my heart was full of all of these points that I wanted to make. And I, I feel this sense of relief. Honestly, every, every night for the past, I don't know, three weeks, I've gone to bed with the soundtrack in my head, like one or more of the themes just in my head to the point where it's like, if you overindulge in your favorite thing, like, you know, too much ice cream or sweets or whatever, and you feel like slightly sick, that's the way I've, what I've done to myself is being like, I'm almost trapped in the, in this like <laughs> bubble of like pleasure. And so I need to just put it to rest for a while. And so I needed to get those things off my chest and now I can, and we okay, can go good. and we can watch the Harley Quinn birds of prey movie. Which <gasps> oh, I yes, that's available on, on demand too. I've seen that one twice. And I also love that movie. I'm excited to see it. Oh, have you not seen it? Nope. Oh, I hope you like it. I really, really liked it. I, I'm sure I will. I mean, I, I was looking forward to seeing it in the theater and then just never happened. So, okay, can you please, 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 please report back and let me know what you thought. I absolutely will. You know, I will. <laughs> so Kristen and I came since we are both, well, I've always been full-time telework for like the last three years, but Kristen is now full-time telework. We are trapped at home since we are both living in areas that have pretty, well, I don't know about uh, Boise, but at least the Washington DC area, we have many um, COVID-19 cases. We had the idea to bring you guys kind of little mini pods throughout the next couple weeks as we are quarantined at home. Uh, maybe we'll say we won't always talk about Jane Austen. Maybe we'll talk about other things on our mind. What do you think, Kristen? <laughs> yeah, we can uh, we can loosen it up a bit. But just little bite-sized morsels to keep things going, to keep ourselves sane. So maybe we can talk a little bit about Birds of Prey. Yeah. Maybe I'll watch it again, too. What's, what's going will, on right now? Well, you will have seen Birds <laughs> of Prey as many times as you will have seen Emma if you watch it again. That's true. <laughs> I, I think you should probably watch Emma some more. Oh, I think you're right. Well, I have it for another, like, 30 yeah. hours. Yeah. So yeah. I could get in, what, eight, ten viewings? <laughs> I have really enjoyed seeing everybody's tweets as they've been watching it over, certainly the first weekend it came out. I followed this author, Bo North. She's really funny. Um, she tweeted like, oh my God, Knightley's such a fucking dork and I love it. <laughs> and he he's is a dork. You know? I'm, he's a dork. I he's think, your dad's friend who reads. Well, the part where he, I don't know. I think that they, I think it's smart to show him actually having a, we don't see a lot of scenes from Knightley's perspective. Right. And like when he throws himself down on the ground, showing the power <laughs> of his emotion, yeah. we know exactly what he's, we know more what Knightley's feeling in this version than I think any other version, including the novel. Yeah. But I think it also serves to, make him seem less stuffy and less old. Yes. Like flinging yourself down on the ground. It's a very teenage thing to do, isn't yes, it? His it emotions is. are so overwhelming, even though he's supposed to be like a 30-year-old man. Yes, he has uh, so many emotions about her. He doesn't know where to put them. So he's doing right. the schoolyard thing of punching you and then running away as a sign of affection. He just he doesn't know where to put them, so he just criticizes yeah. her. Or, um, and then he has to fling himself to the ground. Yeah, which is uh, which is sort of like a less emotionally mature way of handling your feelings, right? right? <laughs> it's so true. And, you know, in the end, another thought I had about him is in the end, when he says to Emma, I'll come here to Hartfield and live, 
doesn't feel like that much of a sacrifice. He always seems so much happier at Hartfield. You know, yeah. he's in this huge Donwell at cold, you know, full of dead, cold marble Donwell Abbey. His house is almost empty. There's all yes. these huge rooms with no furniture or the furniture that's there is covered with sheets. He basically lives at Hartfield anyway. It's where yes. his heart lives. Yes. It's a heart. It's heart. Oh. It has a heart in it, literally. Oh sure God. does. Oh my God. <laughs> Brilliant point, Margaret. Well, thank you, Kristen. High praise from the from you. Should we go to the wheat sheaf? Oh, do we have? Yes, we should. We did not go last time. I just wanted to quickly shout out um, a listener, Lauren, who told me that she listens to our podcast in near. How do you say it, Maggie? Edinburgh. Ed Edinburgh, Scotland, Scotland, going walking in the woods. And I love this I visual. Right? Love this visual of these beautiful. I was looking up pictures of it, you know, like doing Google Maps and looking up, you know, like all the abandoned like castles there and stuff. And just thinking of my voice being in this beautiful place, cool, you know, green, lovely place just made me really happy. So, well, Bay and, and I have also decided our next trip will be to Scotland. Oh, awesome. Yeah, because, because I studied you've been there. there. You studied yeah, there, I, right? I studied there and I've been there many times and he's never been. So we went to Germany on our honeymoon where he studied. So he owes me his trip to Scotland. Yes, for sure. When this is all over. Kevin and I were going to go to Santa Fe, um, which Santa is not, Fe, not as far as Scotland. There. Do you swear you won't forget me? <laughs> What are you singing? Oh my, Kristen. Newsies? I I don't. There's I've a whole song it. called Santa Fe. I've never seen Newsies. <sighs> <laughs> okay. That's pretty so. much universally the reaction I get when I say that. Side note, Santa Fe has two great songs and two great musicals. The first, of course, is Rent. There's a whole song about going to Santa Fe. And then the second is Newsy. So for some reason, Santa Fe is the place where when people live in New York, they decide that they're going to go to escape. But now no one can say Santa Fe without me just immediately bursting into the song from the musical Newsy, which is sung by Christian Bale. <laughs> like 18-year-old Christian Bale. Wow. Uh, it's good stuff. You should look it up. Well, how does it go? I missed it. How does it go? Okay, let me look up the beginning so I can give you a, a good rendition. Just hold on just a second. You can edit this out if you want. Okay. So that's what they call a family. Mother, father, daughter, son. Because they're in New York. Aren't you glad nobody's waiting up for you? Okay, that's way too, that's way too early in the song. There's a transition, right? When the city's finally sleeping... And my thoughts begin to stray, and I'm on a train that's bound for Santa Fe. And I'm free, like the wind, like I'm gonna live forever. It's a dream that time can never take away. All I need's a few more dollars, and I'm out of here to stay. Dreams come true, yes they do. In Santa Fe. And then it goes into a whole longer, louder thing I won't get into. I apologize for being so off key, but it's really good. <laughs> but of course it, it ends, which is the part I always sing, which I sang earlier. Um, where he's like, Santa Fe, are you there? Do you swear you won't forget me? 
if I, what is it? I can't remember all the words, so embarrassing. Would you let me come and stay? Oh, it's so good. Sorry, it's gone. I've had a couple glasses of wine, so it's gone. I've got to listen to it. I'll just play it. That was here. lovely. Oh, thank oh, you. You're going you're gonna to make a mess of that. You're going to have to clean that up in editing, but. Uh, I'll, I'll fix it in post. Dreams come um, true. Yes, they do. In Santa Fe. That's that how it goes. Lovely. Oh, thank you. I'm always happy to sing anything you want for you. I hope that our listeners don't find my bursting into song super annoying, no. especially when I'm not that good. No, but I just no. can't help it. It's just, it's in, it's in my heart, you know, I can't help it. <laughs> Listen, I'm sure it's on Disney plus. Oh, do you have yeah. Disney plus? I do not. You haven't seen the Mandalorian. I have, but we just watched it in the, on the seven-day trial and then canceled Disney+. Plus. Oh, my God. Oh, maybe we'll have an, a mini-pod about the Mandalorian. No. No? Oh, okay. You know what? I take it back. Kevin will do a mini-pod about the Mandalorian. <gasps> Can I talk to Kevin about the Mandalorian on a mini-pod? Definitely. <laughs> what did he what say? He, he said... I would like to do as a podcast. I would like to see the baby. <laughs> Can he hear me? No, he can't hear you. Oh my God. I'm just going to quote <laughs> uh, Herzog to him. Oh my God. He's so good. I would like to see the baby. Kevin's thing is everything is a co- complicated profession. Everything is a complicated profession. <laughs> it's heartbreaking. <laughs> Did you see the interview with him where they they shot each scene twice? Once with the puppet as Baby Yoda and once without the puppet to add him digitally. And he said to them, he said, put it back, you cowards. <laughs> he was like, you're cowards. He's beautiful. He's heartbreaking because he loved he loved the puppet so much. He called them cowards for shooting it without it and trying to go the CG route. Oh, he's so brilliant. He's so weird. What a weirdo. Okay, so Kevin and I will do a Mandalorian episode and I'm really excited about it. (laughs) Alrighty. Yes. Okay, good. All right. I know that you've been wanting to get off for like 20 minutes. I'm sorry. No, no, no. I've been extremely enjoying myself. It's just good to talk to you, Mar- Margaret. I know. It's, ugh, we're so. Okay. okay, let's wrap this up. Let's wrap it up. All right. We're going to wrap it up. All right. Well, you want to say it? Uh, I think we need to segue into it because this has just been a shit show this last like half hour. Uh, well, Kristen, I think that we can safely wrap it up. Have Do you feel like you have gotten everything off your chest regarding Emma? God, I hope so. Okay. Then on that note, I will say we have delighted you long enough. Bye. Bye. Here we go. <laughs> so that's what they so good. The family, the daughter, father, son. You like that New York accent? Yeah. That's Christian Bale singing. Wow. Yeah. You can just edit this out, Christian. So you ain't got any I can't believe you've never seen Newsies. Yeah. Never seen it? I mean, do you like to watch 16-year-old guys sing and dance around? No, I'm a 36-year-old woman. Listen. I don't <laughs> need your judgment. On my own. I'm alone, but I ain't.
I'm just going to make you listen to this. I'm sorry. This is a good outtake. Are you still there? I'm still here. Every time okay. I saw, every time I talk, it cuts the song out, so I'm going to be quiet. Oh. Like the wind, like I'm gonna live forever. It's a feeling time can never take away. There's also a big dance sequence in the middle. Where does it say you gotta live and die here? Where does it say I um, can't catch a break? Why should you only take what you're given? Why should you spend your whole life living trapped when there ain't no future? Even a 17, breaking your back for someone else's sake. If the light don't seem to suit you, how about a change of scene? Far from the lousy headlines and the deadlines in between. Now, now we're coming into the dance sequence, which I won't play for you. Thank you, Ned. Thank you. That was magical. <laughs> 